Chapter 19 of Esther Reed's Namesake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Esther Reed's Namesake by Pansy. Chapter 19. Wouldn't you? Have you got religion? she asked at last. Yes, said Esther unhesitatingly. If you mean by that, do I know the Lord Jesus and serve him, I do. A light broke over Melindy's serious face. Then you will understand, she said. I'll tell you how it was. I like Jim, I guess I like him powerful. Or I could if I had a mind to, and I always thought I should. But seven weeks ago, last Sunday noon, he got mad at Mose Beakley. Mose has treated him mean and keeps on doing it. And he's a member of the church, and Jim seems to think that it's along of that that makes him so powerful mean. Jim quarreled with him all the way home from the mill, and then he came in here, and went on awful about the church and religion, and even about Pa. He said Pa wasn't no account since he got religion. And I stood even that. I thought he was mad, and didn't sense what he was saying. But then he begun to talk against him, spoke his name right out, and used awful words. I couldn't stand that, you know, and I got up from the table. We was eating dinner. And I says to him, Jim, says I, Anybody who talks so about that name ain't no friend of mine and can't never be any more. And I walked in here to my own room and shut the door. And Pa said I did right. And that was the end of it? said Esther, with a question in her voice. Nah, pears like the thing won't never end, though my part is done. He seems to think I don't mean it, and he keeps coming and worrying Ma. But it don't do no good. Course I wouldn't give up a thing like that unless I had to, and if I had to, it couldn't be changed, could it? But you don't make it plain to me why you had to, Esther said gently. Don't I? Well, I ain't much good at making things plain. Maybe the verse that showed me will explain it to you. I found it one day in my Bible. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Sure enough, I says, right out loud as soon as I read it. How can they? and it come to me that Jim and I didn't agree about lots of things. He don't believe much in the Bible. He ain't bad, like some, when he talks about it, but he says there's lots of things in it that ain't true. And he laughed about my talking to God and believing that he heard me, and, oh, well, all them things that mean the most to me, and that I've made up my mind shall get a hold of me and keep it, he don't agree with. And he laughs at him and at me. I don't mind his laughing, only it shows, you know, that we don't agree. And when I asked him all about it, he just made it plain that we couldn't walk together in a way to please him, and then, of course, I quit. Esther had not the slightest inclination to explain to the girl what she had learned incidentally in the Bible class during the winter, that the famous text just quoted did not mean what she in her ignorance had supposed, but that, according to the best modern scholarship, it was simply an illustration which the old prophet used to show to his people the certainty of the laws of cause and effect. Do two men walk together except they have made an appointment to do so? asked the prophet, talking about the desert, where it would be strange indeed to have two meet by chance. This was, of course, very unlike Melindy's commentary on it, but what mattered? Was not the spirit of her thought all through the Bible? and had she not higher authority for it than the prophet? She had been to him, and he had taught that she could not please him, 
and take her life walk with one who would not have him for a guide. The matter-of-course result was what impressed the listener. Then, of course, I quit. Did cause and effect follow so surely as that, always, in the moral world? One phase of the subject she felt anxious to bring before this simple literalist. But, Melindy, perhaps you might have won him, after a while, to your way of thinking. Nah, the girl said promptly and gravely. I thought about that a good while, and tried to make it seem sensible. But I had to give it up. You see, I can't do it now. Jim lets me go to meetin' alone, and he tramps over to the saloon and waits there for me till it's out, and he thinks it's awful silly in me to go. And times when he wants me to go somewheres else instead, he's real kind of cross about it, and I can see that if we was married, like as not he'd order me not to go at all. Course that wouldn't do no good. I should go, all the same, if I thought I ought to, but it would be mighty uncomfortable." Maybe I see it plainer, havin' Ma for a kind of a sample. She ain't had a very happy life, Ma ain't, and Pa was a good deal better about her goin' to meetin' and such things before she was married to him than Jim is now. She allows that herself, though she's kind of sorry for Jim and tries by spells to take his part. But what's the use in thinking and talking about all them things anyway? If it ain't right, that settles it. And do you feel sure of that? Why, wouldn't you? You see, I know just as plain as though someone spoke and told me that to marry a man who didn't believe in the Bible, and thought prayin' was silly, and goin' to meetin's was all stuff, and didn't want me to live up to my ideas of what's right, would be puttin' myself straight into temptation. Now, wouldn't it? And how could I do that and keep prayin', lead us not into temptation? And that's the prayer the Lord Jesus gave me for a sample, ain't it? It seems plain to me. Then the carriage came, and Mrs. Kimball was calling to Esther that they must make haste, or they would be late for the evening's appointment. She was sorry to go. There were other questions that she would have liked to ask this girl of few opportunities and much prayer. During the drive home, Mrs. Kimball commented on her gravity, and asked if that red-cheeked mountaineer had given her the blues. Esther laughed. If you knew Melindy, she said, you would not be able to think of such a word in connection with her. She is a unique character. I don't believe I need another Bible lesson today. She gave me one. Did she? I wish I could have heard it. They say those mountain people have the strangest ideas about religion. Mr. Hadley went to one of their meetings last winter, and really I could scarcely believe some of the queer things he told us about them. Don't you remember, Horace? the most singular expressions, some of them almost shocking. Yet they undoubtedly meant to be reverent. Tell us some of the things this girl said, Esther. Oh, there is nothing that can be told, Esther made haste to say. She has unique ways of expressing her thoughts, but her ideas are very good and quite orthodox, although she probably never heard the word. Are they? Then isn't it a pity that you can't have her in your Bible class? She might be able to teach Mr. Langham some lessons. Now, Nellie, cautioned her husband, and the young wife shrugged her shoulders and laughed. I don't care, she said. I like Mr. Langham, of course, everybody does. But you know as well as I do, Horace, how he talks, and I confess that I get vexed sometimes over the smooth composure with which he will brush aside some of the beliefs of my childhood, as though they were cobwebs. 
he has simply spoiled some of the Old Testament stories that were as real to me as the dear grandmother was who told them. I don't know why people think it necessary to harp continually on such matters, even though they have made, or think they have made, some wonderful discoveries. What harm does it do to believe the Bible just exactly as we did when we were children? And what good has ever come of all the efforts to weaken our faith? Isn't the truth always desirable, Mrs. Kimball? It was Mr. Spencer who asked the question. He was listening from the back seat. Oh, I suppose so, she said, turning her face toward him with a half-petulant laugh. At least you students are always boring for it. I hope you will find it some day, I am sure, and that it will do you half as much good as the things some of you like to call myths have done others. My wife wants to go the whole thing, said her husband gaily. Jonah swallowing the whale, or the whale swallowing Jonah. Which was it, Nellie, and all the rest of it? Oh, Jonah, said Mrs. Kimball, do let him rest. He has had to be the target of shallow critics for so long that he must be tired. I am sure I am of hearing about him. If the people who are so fond of discussing what they call errors would let them alone, and give their time to what they believe to be the truth, I think it would be a sensible way to manage, and much more comfortable for the rest of us. And you are welcome, Horace, to tell your friend Mr. Langham that I think so, whenever you want to. Oh, but, I say, broke in Mr. Spencer, is that being quite fair to Langham? Isn't that precisely what he is doing? I haven't been in his Bible class for two years, but I used to attend it regularly, and I never heard him bring in Jonah or any other disputed point, unless he was squarely asked a question. You wouldn't have a many big questions, Mrs. Kimball? Yes, I would, she said stoutly. If people ask silly questions, it is sometimes the best way in the world to evade them, especially if you can't tell them then and there that they are fools. Langham is a misunderstood man, persisted Mr. Spencer. Some of the students, as well as some who are not students and never will be, have misunderstood him and misquoted his words and given an entirely wrong impression of him. I don't think there is a better Greek scholar or a more reverent student of the Bible in our college than Mr. Langham. Of course not, assented Mr. Kimball cordially. I know Langham thoroughly. He and I have been intimate friends since we were youngsters. Mrs. Kimball isn't very well acquainted with him yet, and some of the careless remarks that he has made when alone with us she hasn't exactly understood. Langham is all right from whatever standpoint you look at him and he made haste to change the subject. Esther's face remained grave. She had taken no part in the conversation, but it had not relieved the stricture that her interview with Melindy had left upon her heart. She knew that it was none of those minor differences of biblical interpretation that disturbed Mrs. Kimball, nor for that matter herself. For all that she certainly knew, despite what was perhaps merely a careless way of expressing himself on occasion, Mr. Langham was as orthodox as herself. The truth was, it was not his opinions, but his daily living that troubled both of them. Mrs. Kimball had married a man who respected religion and professed nothing more. Of course she believed that she could win him easily to the Christian faith which she professed, and almost equally, of course, she had been mistaken. She found that the young man who went to church regularly through the vacations and was always ready to walk with her afterward to her father's house, 
when conditions were changed and they occupied the same house, found a dozen excellent reasons why he should remain cosily with his books and cigars and let his wife do the church-going for both. She had heard much of Mr. Langham and knew that his influence over her husband was strong. She had rejoiced in the discovery that he was a Christian and a Bible-class teacher. Then, of course, he would influence Horace in just the direction she desired. Alas for her hopes! Mr. Langham was a constant guest in the new little home, and apparently was quite as ready as her husband to spend his Sunday afternoons in the pretty library, amid clouds of tobacco smoke, glancing over the Sunday newspapers, and chatting about their contents or he was ready for a Sunday walk or drive, and a chat over the social functions of the past week, and the plans for the coming one. This is about the only let-up from the grind of the week that Horace and I have, he explained cheerfully to Mrs. Kimball. He rarely went to his own church on Sunday evenings, but was a frequent visitor in town, for oratorios or other special services, and rejoiced over the fact that the Sunday schedule of trains was so conveniently arranged for suburbans. In short, Mrs. Kimball, looking on with an anxious heart, had, long before this, told herself bitterly that for all she could see, Horace had as much religion as Mr. Langham, but he knew better than to make professions and teach Bible classes. But Mrs. Kimball was a sorely disappointed woman, and could not help being a trifle severe. She had never, of course, exchanged confidences with Esther on this subject, and had never before spoken so plainly of Mr. Langham in her presence, yet the girl knew instinctively what the matron thought of him. She tried to join in the gay talk that was presently floating about her, but her thoughts would hover uncomfortably around the subject they had left. She tried to condemn herself as narrow and prejudiced. What if Mr. Langham never came to the midweek prayer meeting, for instance, was a man's religion to be judged in such ways as that? He was a very busy man, a hard student, and one who held an important professorship. Probably he had not an evening a week to give to the church. But he always found evenings for the public functions of the college, debates, concerts, amateur plays, recitals, receptions, what not? Of course, as a professor in the college, he probably considered it his duty to sustain the efforts of the students in all these directions. No doubt the president expected it of him. Well, as a professing Christian, was it not his duty to sustain the functions of his own church? Had not his chief a right to expect it of him? Besides, he frequently spared an evening for grand opera in town, or for some choice play at the Allerton, but that was in the way of recreation." Poor Esther found it exceedingly difficult to arrange Professor Langham's duty or his conscience for him, and gave over the effort. She went to the called meeting, as she had promised Mrs. Kimball that she would, and Mr. Langham was openly glad to see her. She was purposely late and the room was full, but he walked to the farther end of it to speak to her, and held her hand for a moment in a pressure that was unmistakable. At the close of the conference, he stationed himself near the front door, hat in hand, although he was the guest of the Kimballs for the night. He stepped forward as Esther came from the sitting-room, whither she had retreated for a moment with Mrs. Kimball. Both Faith and Blanche were with her. "'I am going home with the girls,' she explained to Mrs. Kimball, loud enough for others to hear. "'I haven't seen them in three months, you know.' "'It is a charming evening for a walk.' said Mr. Langham, promptly and cheerfully. 
I may take it with you, I hope, young ladies, and see you safely home, Miss Randall, when you are ready? Oh, no, thank you, Professor, Esther said quickly. It is moonlight, you know, and there are three of us. We are not in the least afraid, and I am going to stay all night with the girls. Can you keep me? she asked breathlessly, when they were on the street. You must. I had to invite myself because, well, there is a reason. The reason is plain enough, said Faith Farnham. It was to Professor Langham, I am sure. We are glad to get a hold of you on any terms, aren't we, Blanche? But what a horrid child you are! I hadn't the least idea, Esther Randall, that you could be so barefacedly wicked. End of chapter 19 Recording by Tricia G.